Well, I got a little bit of crying out of the way during that prayer, buddy. Thank you. When uh, Wayne asked me to, to speak, I didn't really think much about it because we've already been through several milestones. And then I got here and I realized that I hadn't seen a lot of you since that uh, fateful day in November the 29th. And um, it's good to see you. It's good to be here. And it's also the first time that I've uh, spoken to an audience in a full-length sermon since then. I've taught class and uh, I've spoken uh, in my room, closed doors, you know, to the world over the Internet, but not an audience like this, especially an audience that uh, means so much to Carla and me because of uh, your influence on us over the years, the good work that you've done in the kingdom, the love that you have for us. You've shown our children, our grandchildren, and uh, it's just uh, a very special place to us. And then to think about uh, what is before us, Psalm 29. If you have your Bibles, please be turning there. Psalm 29, the assignment. The God above the storm. I don't know what Wayne had in mind for me today to, in delivering this lesson, but it certainly has encouraged me and helped me, and hopefully it will help you as well today. On October the 27th, 1991, Hurricane Grace formed in the area of Bermuda, moved toward the coast of southeastern United States. Two days later, Grace continued to move northward, where it encountered a massive low-pressure system moving down from Canada. The clash of systems over the Atlantic Ocean caused some 70 to 90 mile an hour winds, 40 to 80 foot waves, some even measuring 100 feet in height. This massive surf caused extensive coastal flooding, particularly in Massachusetts. Damage also sustained as far as Jamaica and as far north as Newfoundland. Continued to churn in the Atlantic on October the 31st. It was nicknamed the Halloween Storm. But of course, a lot of us, because of the famous movie that was made and the book that was written about it, know it as the perfect storm. Weather conditions were just right and everything came together in a way that made this massive storm a storm of the century. I know a lot of us have felt like that we've been in the perfect storm this past year. Maybe some of us more than others. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've gone through some great difficulty in your family life. Certainly our world has been turned upside down. It weren't just for the disease and those that we've lost because of the pandemic, this terrible storm has caused device, division between brethren. It's caused maybe perhaps each one of us to look upon one another with a little bit of suspicion and wondering about those that do and those that don't, and why we do and why we don't. Truly, this has been a year, 2020 that is, 
and now on into 2021. For us, of course, the storm was great. I lost both of my parents. Carla and I love them dearly. A dear mentor in the faith, Brother Norman Starling. And then our cardiac event. And I say ours because it affected Carla more, perhaps, than it did me. But a lot has happened in our life, and we give glory to God for the things that uh, have occurred. Both the so-called bad things, as we might see them, certainly the good ones. And that may be you today, thinking back over the course of last year, or even right now, going through some sort of, quote, perfect storm in your life. And as we face those storms, whether it is now or the storms in the future where things seem to be fairly cool and uh, normal as the world goes, those storms will arise. They will be there. They will happen to us. No matter how perfect it seems as though our life is, they will ultimately come. Because I thought that my life was just about as perfect as it could be as far as blessings were concerned. And they were. But I want to tell you, they're even better today. God's been good to me. He's been good to all of us. And His voice cries out above the storm like never before. I think we can say that if we've been through some difficulties come to know God in a better way, in a heightened way. Psalm 29 is a peculiar psalm. As we read it, it's peculiar because we maybe wonder, who is the storm? What is the storm? And to whom is this written? Psalm 29 has been entitled, The God Above the Storm. The voice of the Lord in the storm. But the question I pose before all of us today is, what do we do in the midst of the storm? How do we handle the storm? How do we keep from being lost at sea? You might remember in the story of the perfect storm, there were a handful of fishermen on the Andrea Gale that were never heard from or seen again, sword fishermen, out simply involved in what they perhaps thought was just a normal day as they moved away from the shore and ultimately brought them their demise. How do we keep from meeting our demise in the midst of the storms that we face? Let's take a moment and read Psalm 29 and then go back and analyze the text and think about maybe three major points that we can glean from it today. So Psalm 29, beginning in verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. 
The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. And Syrian, or another word for Hermon, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Now, one of the reasons why this tremendous psalm is entitled The Voice of the Lord Over the Storm is because of verse number 3 and verse number 10. Voice of the Lord is over the waters. Well, what waters are those? Well, the voice of the Lord is over many waters. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But one thing I do want you to think about as sort of a side note here as we move through this. And that is, historically, when this particular psalm was composed, what did many of the pagans in, among the Canaanites believe about their gods? One of them was that there was a god by the name of Baal or Baal that was the fertility god also known as the storm god. He was the god that brought the rain. And remember, Elijah met Baal or the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in a duel, calling upon Baal to come down and send a lightning bolt to consume the sacrifice. If really he is a god, if really he's alive, then surely he could consume the sacrifice and bring rain after this long period of drought. There have been actual depictions of Baal that have been discovered on these ancient stelas, these stone monuments. And the depiction of Baal, like so many pagans or or, or deities of the ancient world, would often be shown just like human beings who were on a throne with a scepter. But in these two inscriptions that I'm thinking of this afternoon, Baal, for his scepter, is shown to be holding a lightning bolt. So the Canaanites, and unfortunately later on, some of the Israelites began to worship the storm god. And so that particular duel on Mount Carmel is of great significance for readers in this day and age thinking about the fact that the pagans worship the so-called storm god or even maybe the god Poseidon out on the ocean. But who is it really that brings the storms? But more important than all of that, not is it just the one who brings the storm, but whose voice can be heard over the storm? Because storms are going to come, whether it is, by natural design, simply as a result of the natural world that we live in, or maybe even through the providence of God. 
as a means of punishment, as a means of refining us and helping us. Whatever all is in view here, contextually, historically, as we read through this, both as an ancient reader but as a modern reader, one thing is for certain, and that is that God's voice is the emphasis in this chapter. Seven times it is emphasized. In fact, the word Lord himself is found some 19 times in this particular chapter. What's this psalm about? It is about the Lord, the Lord and his voice that rises above any calamity, any problem, any difficulty, any tragedy, any sorrow, any harm, hurt, feeling of sadness that we might have. The Lord's voice is what must be heard. But as we think about Psalm 29 and thinking about the storms that maybe we face in our life, what are three things that we can do in the midst of those storms based on Psalm 29? Number one, I would suggest to you that when we find ourselves in the torrents of the winds and we feel as though our boat is beginning to sink, that we do what God's people always should do and find delight in, and that is simply this. Worship. Worship. Take a look at the first two verses of Psalm 29. The psalmist calls upon heavenly beings. Some translations say the sons of God. Angelic beings, whoever they are. Some even say, well, maybe this is akin to the pagans and, and those beliefs that they had about the individuals coming from the... It doesn't matter. The point is whether it is those individuals in that day, angelic beings or any of us, there is this unmistakable principle and truth that will help to guide us through any storm, and that is turn our thoughts toward deity. Turn our thoughts toward the Lord. Ascribe, he says. What do we mean by ascribe? Well, not maybe in the modern sense of that term ascribe, which sometimes means to confer or, or to rather to give to someone something. We don't, we don't give these to God. God already has them. What we are doing is not conferring, but we are acknowledging. We are affirming the various characteristics and qualities that belong to deity. And when we do that, when we begin to recognize who God is, it puts things in perspective. It helps us to take any crisis and any situation and look at it from the lens of heaven and not the lens of men. And we begin to see that God is bigger and greater than any of our problems and our trials. So what do we ascribe to the Lord? Well, we ascribe to him glory and we ascribe to him strength, the glory that is due his name, and we worship him in the splendor of holiness. Now, spiritual array, no, it's not necessarily talking about us today putting on some sort of special garments to worship God, although the priest may have obviously had to do that in the Old Testament but variously translated, the idea is seeing the splendor and the beauty 
and the greatness of God. Do you know what causes me to want to worship God? Oh, yes, God calls me to do that. I know I'm commanded to do that. But what about the desire to do it? What helps me with the desire to do it is when I see just how little and insignificant I am in comparison to the holiness and the grandeur and the greatness of God. And let me tell you, there's nothing like a storm to help you to see that. There's nothing like a tragedy to help you realize just how weak you really are. God is holy. He is beautiful. Just as Isaiah in chapter 6, when he received his commissioning, wanted to go out and to tell others and to, and to share the good news, here am I, send me, he had a woe experience first. And the woe experience was seeing the radiance and the brilliance and the majesty, the holiness of God. You know, the first time, by the way, I ever heard the word Shekinah glory was when Buddy Martin preached about it here. You probably don't remember that. How many years ago was that? Long time ago. I remember hearing it and then learning more and more about it over the years. God is so powerful. The very nature of God is so different from human beings. He's sinless. He's perfection. He's powerful. And so how, how can we begin to understand that more and more? Well, part of that, the Bible says there is this radiance that emanates from his throne. It's called his glory. The old King James in Hebrews call it the effulgence. I like that. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The effulgence. It's this brightness that emanates from God's throne that Moses saw on the mountain in Exodus chapter 33. God, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your glory. God, let me see your glory. Why was Moses even saying that? Because the chapter that preceded chapter 33 was all about the golden calf incident. The sinfulness of God's people. And now God tells Moses, Moses, I know you by name. You have found favor in my sight. But I, God, I still, I don't know. I, I'm a sinful person. I'm with a sinful people God, is that really true? I want more. Show me your glory. And so he was allowed to go on the mountain. And when he went on the mountain, remember he just saw the tail end of the glory of God. And what happened when he saw it? It changed him. He began to shine like the sun. Just the tail end of it. But there's more to the glory of God than just understanding the brightness and the brilliance of it that causes us to have this awe moment, this in awe moment of wanting to praise and to bow down before God, of not only seeing that, but understanding what lies at the essence of it. Because I'm convinced it's not just the brilliance and the radiance that can be attributed to or connected to the glory of God, but it's what was said on the mountain in Exodus 34, chapter 6, when he finally got there. Because as he's passing by and God holds him in the cleft of the rock, do you remember what was uttered? The Lord, Lord God, 
gracious, forgiving the iniquity of thousands. Oh, the Lord is kind. He is full of loving kindness. He's gracious. It is a picture into the very nature and essence of God that speaks to yes and no wise. He will clear the guilty, his justice, but also his grace and his mercy that allows us to even come into the very presence of God. And when we see that, when we begin to understand just who God is and we recognize those qualities and characteristics, we will want to bow down. And when we do, and we bow down before God, we ascribe to him glory and praise and honor that is due his name and we see him and we worship him in the splendor of his holiness. Do you know what that does for us individually? That we can be in fellowship with God that he would hear the meditation of our heart, that he would hear the sentiments of our thoughts of our heart and know and listen and delight in. You know what that does? For a person who is feeling weak emotionally, physically. I can tell you one of the greatest joys and comforts that came to me in those first few days after I finally became aware of where I was and that I knew who I was, which was pretty significant to me, was to sing, to listen to hymns of music, praise to God, songs about the love of our Heavenly Father, of the joy and the blessings of being a Christian, of the reminder that this life isn't all that there is, that there's something far greater and better and pristine, righteous and holy that awaits the child of God. To know that when we approach God, we can call Him our Father. When your fathers of this earth have left, and as much as you begin to love God because of your earthly fathers, many of us, it's when your earthly father leaves this life or your spiritual fathers are no longer with you that that title takes on a much greater significance to you. God. We worship and we bow down. There is, in fact, a tremendous value that comes from singing like the Apostle Paul and Silas did in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, in the midst of their hardship and their pain after having been beaten and thrown into prison. What were they doing, my brethren? They were singing. They were singing songs of praise. Yes, the motivation for worship is given in these marvelous verses. God's holy array. But secondly, this afternoon, 
when we encounter the storms of life, when we're struggling and feeling as though that maybe our ship, our boat is being threatened, and the waves are becoming so high, what do we do? The psalmist says, listen to the voice of God that overrides the storm. Beginning in verse 3 and down through verse 9, there's this interesting sort of description that occurs of this storm. And I can't help but think about it geographically as when he speaks about it being over many waters. Well, what were the many waters of the people of Israel? Most likely it was the Mediterranean Sea. Notice the movement here. It's almost as though the psalmist is describing this powerful force of nature that is finding its way through the land of Israel. Starting out over the Mediterranean, over the many waters, the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. And what does it do? It moves then inward up to the northern part of the area. Seems to be that that is the reference in verse number 6. He makes the Lebanon to skip like a calf. And then Syrian, that is another word again for Hermon, some 10,000 feet roughly. Moving from sea level on the Mediterranean Sea, moving northward then up to the Lebanon Mountains and up to Mount Hermon, the storm goes up there and it rattles the cedars of Lebanon. This is a powerful storm. It is great. It is tremendous. And then it moves some 200 miles south all the way to Kadesh, Kadesh, down in the wilderness area where God's people once lived or inhabited during the wilderness wandering period. The storm just moves through, and as it does, it flashes forth flames of fire, lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness, and it even causes this sort of premature birth to happen in the animal world. Here's a deer. It's going to give birth, but not yet. It's not time, but so powerful is the storm that she goes into labor early. This is a powerful storm. You ever had a powerful storm that you faced? I don't know about what all, there's so much here in terms of the many waters. The Bible uses the reference, especially in the book of Revelation, thinking about and the book of Daniel, of beasts coming up out of the waters, of nations rising and falling like the waves of the sea. The sea beast and Satan using um, Rome to do its dirty work. There's a, there's a lot of imagery here maybe that we could rely upon. The waters all the way back to the time of the creation. So much of it certainly is symbolic for us in terms of of the various trials that we might face. But whatever all this is, and whoever is responsible for it, whether it is God's destructive force upon people like Baal, or the, the gods of the Canaanites like Baal, 
for the nations like Syria and Assyria of his destructive force coming in terms of discipline. Whatever all this might mean and the various shades of meaning that might go along with it, there's one thing that is for certain that the psalmist is trying to emphasize to us and which we must always remember in the middle of every storm, and that is we need to hear above all the clatter and the chatter and all the noise and all the debris going by and everything else, this powerful voice of the Lord. God's Word is truly powerful. We know that by reading various passages of Scripture, like Ephesians 6, 17, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Hebrews 4, verse 12, the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. The Word of God will set you free. Oh, yes, the Word of God will cleanse you. And as Paul told the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace that is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. God's Word is a piercing, powerful message that really allows us to see things from God's perspective, that allows us to have a deeper understanding of the whole issue of the, of the problem of evil, pain, and suffering, that allows us to draw strength and to know of the love of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God. And yea, as we're going to see here in just a moment, the very things that we must do in order to have peace and contentment in life. So when the storms come, what do we do? We worship. When the storms come, we turn our mind to the Word of God where we find strength knowing that as we look into the perfect law of liberty, as James tells us in a description about the trials and the struggles of Christians in the first century and that all of us will face, that what we do is to shut up for a while, right? Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. But don't be just a hearer of the word, but a doer. Have faith, trust in God. And that faith, of course, that can sustain us, that can help us, comes from hearing the word of God. Just like Habakkuk, who when he saw the violence and the treachery and all of the evil that was occurring in the land, and he wondered, God, why are you allowing this to happen? You're pure eyes and to even look upon sin. And even Habakkuk maybe becoming a little bit haughty, saying, I will set myself on my tower and I will listen for what the Lord is going to say, you know, because I'm going to be rebuked. I want to know, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And God answers Habakkuk. And God allows him to see that really what's happening, Habakkuk, is the patience and the mercy of God is on suffering. Sometimes we wonder in the midst of our own pain, God, why is this happening to me? God, why is it that those who have abused me and hurt me are allowed to continue on in their situation? 
God, haven't you noticed? Don't you care? And what we learn from the book of Habakkuk by hearing the word of God is that God is giving them space to repent, but in the end, he will handle it. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is great. He sees all. He knows all. We can trust God. And that's the message that we get time and time again when we hear the Word of God, when we read the Word of God, when we listen to what God says, we are reminded of that in stories like Joseph. Any of us hated by our brothers? Any of us been sold into slavery? Maybe. Taken away from our homeland? And then falsely accused and in prison in a foreign nation? I mean, things got pretty bad, didn't they, for Joseph? But what do we see in the great story of Joseph? That ultimately, if we trust God, that he will bring about good, even through difficult circumstances. Though that while some people meant it for evil, God meant it for good. We rise above. We look beyond. We see with the lens of heaven, not the lens of men. And as a result of that, we are sustained in our difficulties. Because we see a bigger, larger picture. We see a heavenly. Yes, the voice of the Lord is so powerful. Listen to what he says, that it's over many waters. It is truly powerful, verse number um, four, that it's full of majesty. It's beautiful, full of honor. It breaks the forces of nature, verses five through six. It flashes forth. God's word brings judgment. He will handle the wickedness and the evil and the oppression. It shakes the wilderness. Maybe you've been through a wilderness experience of your own. But it is through those various wilderness experiences that we can learn, as we're going to see as we end here in just a moment. The word of God gives life. I can't help as I read through these and are reminded of the beautiful poetry or the imagery here of the natural world of just how powerful God's voice is and not help but think about the great miracle that took place at the Sea of Galilee. Like a lot of us, right? We get into our boat and we set sail across the ocean of life or the sea of life or the waters, wherever they may be. And it's a beautiful day and we think everything is just right. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, just like it would occur then because of the natural features of the geographic or the location of the Sea of Galilee, some 690 feet below sea level, the winds coming down off of Mount Hermon, some 97 100 feet above sea level, being channeled down into the Hula Basin, into a small area, and then sort of literally bursting out on the sea that a storm could arise. And suddenly, 
12 men and the Lord struggling in their boat to keep afloat. Waking him up and saying, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? How can you lie asleep like a lot of us? Out of nowhere, encountering a storm, one day everything is just fine, and then one day you're in a hospital bed, or suddenly you find out some terrible news about a family member or something terrible about what they believe or what they've been doing to you. Talk about a storm erupting. Maybe we're just like the disciples and we think, Lord, are you asleep? Don't you care that we're perishing? And the Lord stood on that occasion and what did he do? He rebuked the wind. And the winds ceased. The waves stopped. With just the power of his word. And they were all amazed. Their faith had been so little, but when they saw what happened, they said, even the winds and the sea obey him. Folks, is this not a reminder of the fact that though there are storms all around this literal or figurative, there is the unchanging message of God and his love for us and his care for us and of you toward eternity that can stop, that can quell any storm, that can allow us to have peace. Because just like the words of Jesus were so powerful some 2,000 years ago out on that Sea of Galilee, so they are powerful today when I read them and I hear them because they stop the storms of dissension and evil. They can stop the storms of despair and of anxiety and worry. Oh, how powerful God's words are. But then finally, not only in the midst of our storms do we need to worship God, not only does the psalmist tell us that we need to hear or understand or know the powerful voice of the Lord that goes over all of these storms, but then number three, in the midst of the storm, think about this. This is pretty powerful, and it may sound strange at first. But in the midst of the storm, we need to remember the flood. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. What flood is that? I don't know, but I couldn't help but think about the flood. I say the flood today. What flood are we talking about? Not this destructive one that took place in Wimberley down here a few years ago that it was pretty powerful. But the flood that covered the earth. That flood, though devastating and horrific, did something. It cleansed the earth. And the waters of that flood lifted Noah and his family as they were safe inside the ark to a new beginning. Peter himself, the beloved apostle Peter, addressing a people who were persecuted and who were suffering and who were struggling, brings to mind the flood story wherein eight souls were saved by water. 
the world that then was perished. But out of that, a new beginning. And so he says, don't you know as you look back to your baptism that you were rescued, you were saved from a world of iniquity, from a world that has fallen and destroyed, that has its problems and its difficulties, yes, but baptism doth also now save you. That's a reference to our becoming a Christian and the salvation, the confidence, and the hope that we have in Christ. And as a result of the floods that will continue in our life, you know what they do? I'll tell you what they do. They refine us if we'll let them. Cause us to think more seriously about our relationships, about the things that are really most important. Whenever we're hurting, whenever we're in harm, we need to see that our light affliction can work for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Yes, suffering is a means of helping us. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood just as the flood cleansed the earth, so the floods and the storms of our life can cleanse us, can refine us, can make us better. And ultimately, notice what he says now in verse 11. Give us strength, and give us peace. Those fishermen that were lost, six of them on the Andrea Gale, were never seen from or heard from again. They perished. But in the perfect storms of our life, we don't have to perish. We can be made stronger. They were lost in the storm, but we don't have to be. But instead, we remember the refrain and the powerful words of this beautiful song. Master, tempest is raging. The billows are tossing high. The sky, it's o'ershadowed with blackness. No shelter or help is nigh. Perish thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep? When each moment so madly is threatening a grave in the angry deep. The winds and the waves shall obey thy will. Peace, be still. And whether the wrath of the storm tossed sea, or demons, or men, or whatever it be, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Peace be still. Peace be still.